Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7. This is the Word of God. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing upon your word. For many of us, this is a very common passage, and it's very easy for us to tune it out. And we ask that we would not. For Christ's sake, amen. I was reading an article this week, uh, analyzing kind of the coronavirus and its impact in the culture today and what the shutdown has done for us politically and personally and financially, and it was intriguing because kind of the main point of this article uh, was tucked away at the end. It was very intriguing. It, it started out uh, with a series of kind of vignettes of different people. Hi, let's pause for a moment and look at this lady's life, and uh, let's contemplate this young man's life, and let's look at this family's life or whatever else, and look at all of these different categories of people were ready for the unknown. They had saved a lot of money. They had ordered their life, but they weren't ready for this. And they lost their jobs, and they lost their money, and they now have no hope except for the government. It turns into a political ad at the end, and you're like, oh, come on. Out of all the people I trust in this world, really, the government's the one you want me to trust? All right, whichever political party wears this, I'm not voting for you. It is intriguing, though, how that's so much of what's kind of happening in our world in this moment, and it's really been exposed beautifully through the pandemic and all of the shutdown and the complications in our culture and the financial ramifications and all of the mess that's happening, is it's really done an excellent job of showcasing some of those hidden desires, trusts, and trajectories in our heart. 
those hidden kind of superstitions almost even, the things that we place hope and faith in that maybe we might not have seen when things were going quite so well. It made me chuckle, this article, because like I said, it, it posed this uh, you know, unexpected, unknowable problem, and the only solution to an unexpected, unknowable problem is the government, which to me is quite unexpected and often an unknowable problem of its own right. Recognizing, it's kind of diagnosing the problem in some ways quite well. We don't know how this life works in every situation, and we certainly don't know every circumstance that's coming. And what a sweet mercy. I'm a coward. You're a coward. We'd never be able to make it through the difficulties that God had planned for us if we knew how hard they were going to be the first time we had to walk them. I mean, think about back on the, the most difficult times in your life. The Lord was wonderfully kind by giving us ignorance. And we didn't know how challenging it would be. And there's also a kind of a natural tendency, an easy kind of trajectory to have in our minds uh, that we kind of, on years like this year, kind of talk about life from the perspective like life is kind of out to get us. Or the world is out to get us. Or maybe even because we're Christians and we believe in God, perhaps even God is out to get us. And it's an easy kind of assessment to make in 2020, right? The world's topsy-turvy. It seems like everything that's happened is bad things left and right. And we just can't kind of imagine we weren't certainly expecting it to be this aggressively difficult. And while if we're kind of good biblical scholars, we know the world is out to get us, <laughs> it's opposed to us. Your flesh is out to get you, and certainly the devil is out to get you. But that is a, a tremendous misreading of the character of God. Matthew chapter 7 gives us a better portrait of what God's attitude is like. And I'd like for us to consider kind of, we're going to look at this kind of two parts, kind of God's uh, perspective, who God is, his character, and then kind of our response to it, uh, divided by the paragraphs as the ESV has it. But initially, really wanting you to consider kind of God's attitude toward you. God's attitude toward life, even in 2020, where we have the coronavirus and we have an election that's very challenging and we have murder hornets, which, by the way, they killed the big nest this week. So murder hornets might be off the table for at least a season. What is God's attitude toward me? Is he out to get me? Is he some sort of cosmic troll designed to make my life harder every time I can? Is it, is it going to get worse? Well, it might. 2021 might be worse. It's possible. What do we see about God? Well, first, verses 7 and 8, I would ask that we kind of pause and marvel at God's generous attitude toward his people. Look at the, it's a simple, ordinary verse. The grammar's not complicated. You read it and you get the exact meaning of it on first reading. This is one of those that uh, eight-year-olds understand it perfectly. Ask, 
and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks, find. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. It's showcasing God's spirit toward his children. When he interacts with his people, what is his demeanor? Some of us have grown up in homes, and this is God's design, grown up in homes where the default answer was always no. If mom and dad didn't have time to think about it, what was the answer? No. Mom, can I? No. Dad, can I? No. Dad, can I breathe? No. Default answer is no. It's interesting that the Lord's interaction with his people is not the same, though many times we perceive it that way. Many times we think of our God and we think, okay, every time I interact with God, my interaction is one of no. He's given me the Ten Commandments, which are a list of things I can't do, some of which might seem fun for a time. He's given me the Old Testament, which rules out a lot of the other things that might seem fun for a time. He is the God of no. And friends, it's so easy for that to kind of creep into the back of our minds and to begin to infect because that is a poison. And it begins to infect our perspective of our God. And what happens is on good days, it doesn't seem quite so bad. On good days, what it is, is it's a God who's kind of transactional at best. Well, I was good, I did the good things, therefore God gave me the good things. But in years like 2020, or when you hit a major life challenge and you don't get something that you want, that poison begins to kind of work backwards into your view of God and you begin to question things like, is my God actually good? Does he actually want my best? Does he actually want to give me good things? I mean, he gives everybody else good things. How come he gives them all the good things, but doesn't give me the good things? Which, again, is a poison, because he does give you the good things. Verses 7 and 8 are very helpful, because it informs us what's his perspective towards his children. His default answer is not no. His default answer toward us is generosity. Overwhelming staggering, shocking generosity. His default answer is yes. Ask. It's given. Seek. It's found. Knock. And it's opened. Now, I would say two particular applications of this. If you are an unbeliever in the room or watching online or whatever else, make the big point that this first and foremost addresses the topic of salvation. Our God is so generous, there there is no category for a person that wishes to know Him that can't find Him. That person doesn't exist. Because our God is so generous that if, if you ask, He's there. If you pursue, He's there. If if you seek, He's there. He is the God who is ready. To meet with his children. 
It's my favorite part in conversations uh, of an evangelistic nature where people are like, well, pastor, what, what must I do to be saved? I, I know I've, I've struggled in my life. I know I'm not a perfect person. I might be better than my neighbor, but what must I do to be saved? And then when you kind of frame out, well, look, your good works aren't enough. You're not good enough to save yourself. Even your, your best of works aren't enough. You get to that point, it's a great point of it. Well, what do I do then? If I can't do it, where does salvation come from? Well, it comes from God. And all you have to do is ask. And I love how sometimes people are incredibly honest. This is my favorite, where they're like, I'm going to be honest, Pastor, it's too scary to ask. Great, ask about that. Ask that he helps you get over the scary so that you can ask for the salvation. Ask. He's a generous God. Ask, ask, ask. Now, for those who are Christians and have been in the church uh, for perhaps many years, there's a natural temptation for us here that we begin to take this for granted. That we begin to take for granted that God works and that his predisposition toward us is one of generosity and kindness and giving, and we forget. And sometimes we might even effectively become that kind of kid who's taken into the kind of the world's largest toy store. And in the middle of the world's largest toy store, mom and dad say, anything you want, anything you want, we'll buy it for you. And the child's like, awesome, I want that 25 cent bouncy ball. And mom and dad are like, it's the world's largest toy store. They have cars in here. They have airplanes in here. They have every toy you can imagine in here. And you want the 25-cent bouncy ball that we can get at the supermarket. Okay. I think sometimes we approach our God that way where we, we forget that he's so generous that he's brought all of the resources to heaven from heaven to bear on our lives. And he says, look, ask. And we're like, great, I want the bouncy ball. I mean, it's a nice bouncy ball, don't get me wrong. But there's so much more. And again, we, it's good that we pray for all things, small and large. It's good that you give thanks to the Lord when you find a parking space in a very busy parking lot. It's good to do that and it's right. But it is sometimes important to note that we have to be sure to ask for the big things. That the Lord make us a people of peace. That the Lord give us wisdom. That's one of my favorite prayers. I think I started praying that in the end of middle school and I've prayed it pretty much consistently through most of my life. Lord, thank you that in James you tell us you don't scold us when we acknowledge that we're fools, but instead you give wisdom generously. I want my life to be better. Make me wise. One of the ones we pray in our home often is that the Lord would have us to learn the easy way 
not the hard way. I don't like learning the hard way. Lord, would you please change my heart so that I begin to learn the easy way? That, friends, is not a 25-cent bouncy ball. That's the airplane that flies around the store. And the intriguing thing, again, is I think so many times Christians are, are nervous about asking for the big things. And there's two reasons, I think, why a lot of times we're nervous about asking for the big things. One is because we don't actually think God wants to give us the big things or the good things or the great things. We've let our unwillingness or, or our living within confines of, of uh, scarcity and economics, we, we've let that infect our understanding of our God. And so we're, we're kind of hesitant saying, well, I can't ask for something that big because I'm not sure God can give it. Yes! Ask! Now, the second reason why I think sometimes Christians don't pray the big prayers is uh, because we don't exactly know what to do when we don't get it. I mean, what do you do with a passage like this where God is explicitly explaining, look, if you ask, I give. If you ask, I give. If you ask, I give. And we wrestle through as Christians saying, well, ah, I asked for that one big thing and he never gave it. I asked for that thing and he's never provided it. I asked for that, that dream job and I don't have it. I've, I've asked for that spouse and I'm still single. I've asked for freedom from this really terrible or toxic situation and God has not yet given it and I'm tired of asking and my heart's breaking. What do I do with that? Well, I stop asking. I would say, friends, that, that is a misunderstanding of who our God is. Verses 7 and 8 explain that he's the God who gives. He's a, a generous God and his predisposition toward his children is yes. It's always yes. He gives richly and he gives generously. Verses 9 and 10 are beautiful though because they highlight he's a God who gives with wisdom. Uses an argument of lesser to greater using our experience as parents or uh, children and says, look, God is so wise that he knows the right thing to give. So that when his son asks for a loaf of bread, and again, you can imagine how it would easily be a bit of a joke here, right? A loaf of bread, hand-baked loaf of bread could easily be this size. And he's saying, now, which of you, when his son is asking for a loaf of bread, would go out and get a river rock of a similar size and trick the kid in some sort of cruel prank? Hey, I know you're hungry. Here's something that looks like a loaf of bread, but doesn't exactly taste like one. Well, of course you wouldn't do that. I hope you wouldn't do that. Please don't do that. Or worse yet, a child comes to you and asks for a fish. Mom, I'm hungry. Some of you hear that said about a thousand times a day. You hear it in your sleep. It's all you ever hear. I'm hungry. What do I get to eat? Fix me something, please. At which point do you, you give the child a fish, that would be something good and right and proper to eat, or a serpent, which, if it's alive, is fatal, and if it's dead, is ridiculously unclean by Jewish standards. 
What parent in their right mind is like, hey, it'll be a great practical joke, right? Son wants a sandwich. Here's a cobra. Ha, it's funny. No, nobody does that. Nobody in their right mind does that. What does God do? He's highlighting his wisdom and his generosity to say, God is so kind that when he gives, he gives the right thing. And sometimes when we're asking for things, we're that child that is like, Mommy, I'm hungry. I want cotton candy. Mommy, I'm hungry. I want cotton candy. Mommy, I'm hungry. I want cotton candy. And there's a point where you love to give the kid cotton candy, but after like five or six trash bags full of cotton candy, you're like, look, could you have to have some like protein of some kind? You'll have diabetes by the time you're eight. <laughs> we got to fix that. You can't, you can't eat yourself into oblivion that way. Sometimes we're like that child that goes to mom and dad and says, Mom and dad, I'm tired. I want more caffeine. Mom and dad, I'm tired. I'm so sleepy. I'm falling asleep. It's four in the morning. Get me some coffee. I need to stay awake. And our God is so wise that his answer is yes. He just gives us something better. Sometimes he doesn't give us the cotton candy. He gives us the steak or the peanut butter and jelly. Sometimes instead of giving us the Mountain Dew or the cup of coffee, he makes us go to bed. But it doesn't mean his answer is no. (laughs) It means his answer is better. And friends, I would humbly suggest reorienting our thoughts in these sort of ways will reshape our experience in our daily life. I mean, just think about how it recategorized 2020. To understand that 2020 is a gift that God is giving the church. We've been praying for revival in the land for decades We've been praying for renewal in the church for decades. We've been praying that God would gather and perfect his people for decades. He's given us something new that's helping make that happen. Not what I was expecting. You know, I'll be honest. I was asking for the cotton candy. Lord, can we have no difficulty at all in your spirit just sweep through and have revival that touches everybody and the whole nation's converted? I'd love that. Weirdly enough, that would be the first time revival would have ever happened like that in human history. Because every time revival goes through, people die. They always go hand in hand. It's always difficult. There's always a mess. We've been praying for decades that the Lord would take our idols away so that our eyes would be turned on him so that we would have our our distractions pulled away. Guess what? God's doing that as a nation, isn't he? Oh, I can't just frivolously spend all my money on all these little uh, trinkets and trifles. I have to think about my life. The Lord said no to my cotton candy. He's actually giving me vegetables. I'll be honest, my taste buds might not like them right now. But they're good. Because my God is good.
I love how he puts this into just very clear practice. In verse 11, it's the clear kind of linchpin of the argument. Interestingly, this is actually one of the very few times that Jesus actually calls his disciples evil in any sort of fashion. You realize almost every single time he addresses his people, it is almost always in the positive. This is one of the very few times. It's interesting. Jesus thinks of you as positive. I love that. If you then are evil, if you are broken and fallen parents, if you're limited in your wisdom, if you're limited in your resources, if you have a sinful condition, if you are limited and broken and fallen and a mess and all these things, if you know how to love your children and you know how to give them good gifts and you know how to have your disposition where you delight in giving them all sorts of good resources, how much more does God, who actually knows the heart, who actually knows what's good for us and loves with a perfect love, how much more? does he rejoice in it? I think most parents remember at some point along the way, I hope they do, one genuinely great present they got for their kids that their kids were not expecting. Now, the beautiful thing of living in this age, we can get it on video. We have it in ours, right? When the puppy showed up, we know exactly that moment of uh, to see the richness and the, and the joy and the beauty. And how much as parents do we not delight in that? We delight in the tears of happiness. We delight in the squeals of joy. How much more does God rejoice in that? He's so generous. He's so kind. That's God's attitude towards his children. Now, again, this is only accomplished because of Jesus. It's not because you're a good person. It's because Jesus is a good person. He's making you a good person. He's forgiven your sins freely. But it does, therefore, kind of demand that things be put into practice. Grammatically, verse 12, I think, continues. It seems like a weird break, but I I don't actually think it is. It, It on the surface looks that way. I don't... I don't actually think it is conceptually, though. Verses 7 through 11 lay out God's generosity of spirit toward his people, lays out how God is kind towards his children, how he is predisposed to bless his children. Verse 12 then says, therefore, this is how you are supposed to act with other people. The golden rule. This is one of those passages that everybody's heard a million times and has been misapplied, most of those million, I think. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, uh, there's a little bit of going on in the text here. What Jesus is saying is, therefore, in light of the generosity of your God, in light of his wisdom and his greatness... In light of how freely he gives to you, how richly he takes care of you, you therefore go act with your neighbor in this manner. And the manner is this. All of the ways that you want to be treated, all of the things that you want to be given, all of the ways that you wish your life would go, that is how you are to give freely to them. Interestingly, the golden rule is not a way for me to kind of manifest goodness in my life. It's not about constructing my life at all. It's all about how I treat others. 
you know what, if I wish to be a kind of person that would receive encouragement all the time, what should I be doing? I should be actively encouraging others. If I wish that my life were filled with tenderness and, and, and gentleness of speech, what should I be giving? Gentleness and tenderness of speech. Now, again, this is the, the key element here. Not because I ever res- expect to receive those. Right? Most of the time, this verse is treated incorrectly as a transactional thing. Right? I want Billy to encourage me, therefore I will encourage Billy and hope to somehow trick him into encouraging me. That's not what this passage is saying at all. It's not manipulation. How can I manipulate my friend? It's not it at all. Instead, what it is saying is saying, because God has been so generous with me, I am therefore equipped to live even to the point of being risky in my generosity and freeness of love. I'm able to look at others and say, what is the best thing for them? That's why it has that clause at the end, the part that no one ever talks about. For this is the law and the prophets. Why do we never talk about that? Well, what is Jesus meaning? Is This is the summary, the summation of what it means to love someone. What does it mean to love? What's the definition of love? Our world today, oh my goodness, so confused as to what love is. uh, Definitions are all a mess. Jesus gives us one. It's treating other people the way that you would want to be treated. It's showing to them all the kindnesses and generosities and affections and uh, tenderness and care and hope and optimism that you yourself would want to receive. You talk about the gifts that God has given in 2020. One of the great gifts that he's given in 2020, I think, is to show the church that we really don't understand this verse very well. Because we certainly don't put it into practice very well. Showing other people the benefit of the doubt. Showing other people the optimism and hope that we ourselves would want to have. Showing other people speaking about them behind their back the way that we would want to be spoken about behind our back. And again, part of it is if we're living our lives kind of white-knuckling it, you know, scared of every little thing, knowing that we have to cling to every bit that we've won, well, you know what? Yeah, we're not going to be generous with others. We're not going to be kind to others because we've had to fight for everything. But if we understand our God is generous with us, it gives us the freedom to love our neighbor, to love our brother, to love our sister, and to love them with a free-flowing generosity, a kindness and a hope that would be unexpected. mentioned this in previous weeks, but mention it again here. This is one of the great kind of, I think, challenges in life inside the church is spending the mental energy to try to figure out other people's positions of thought in the best possible light. What's the, the best version of the way my brother or my sister can think? What's the best version of the way that my brother or my sister can feel? 
What's the best version of what's going on inside my brother or sister's heart and mind? And friends, when we begin to treat each other with that sort of tenderness and charity and love, how do you think the church changes? Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when the brothers dwell together in unity. It's like a cool breeze blowing from the mountaintops. It's like a fragrant oil that spreads all over the person. It's a transformative place of blessing. And I believe that's part of what's working here when we love each other with this affection based on the generosity of our God. The world changes. I love how the, Jesus does provide kind of a, a little bit of a counterbalance here. He ends on what we might say is a downer. That could easily turn into just this kind of blind hope that uh, only says, well, only good things are going to happen all the time. And it's always going to be sunshine, puppies, roses, and unicorns. And everything's going to be great. And the church is always going to hold hands. And we're only going to sing Kumbaya. And it's going to be amazing. And it's always going to be perfect. And the problem with that, uh, I believe that, in, in, by and large, that's really what the church was teaching in America in the 80s, which is largely why we've watched major changes happen with the kids who grew up in the 80s and the kids who grew up in the 90s. I think that's honestly part of why we're seeing a, a kind of a fairly large breach from the church, from those age brackets. Because the problem is that when, when we're raised on this kind of turn off your brain and just enjoy this Zen moment in the church, it, it doesn't fully explain the difficulty of life. It doesn't explain why some people are still hateful. It doesn't explain why sometimes people still speak in nasty fashions. It doesn't explain why our country is the way that it is. And I think Jesus explains that instead. In verse 13. He offers the explanation for why life stays hard, why people are still nasty. The short answer is this, is because not everyone's a Christian. The command, enter by the narrow gate, Christ is the narrow gate. And he lays out an, an illustration that there are two categories of person. There is the person who is living their life, and he's kind of using an analogy here, that lives their life that have entered uh, through Christ into the way of faith, and they live uh, a Christianity that is empowered by Christ Jesus, that has the Spirit working within them, and they are walking with God. But he highlights in verse 14, that way is narrow. And sometimes it's actually quite hard and interesting. What's the clause he gives at the end? Those who find it are few. Instead, there's a a way that's wide. A path that's wide, it's easy, that means it's level, it's flat, it's probably well paved. Once you get on it, life seems to just kind of motor along. and, and, And the entire crowd goes that way. But the reality is it leads to destruction. It leads to hell. It doesn't lead to the life to come as a positive end. It leads to the judgment of God and his wrath. 
We've been blessed to live in such a a noble nation, one of the greatest nations in human history. And we've been blessed to live in a nation that has had one of the bright and, and beautiful shining spots of the church in church history. Not the only one. Probably not the most Christian nation in history. Certainly you'd have to look at Scotland or perhaps even the Netherlands at parts to consider that. But the natural tendency, and certainly for those of us that have grown up in the South and the buckle of the Bible belt, it's easy for us to think that just kind of everybody's going to heaven altogether. And the sad reality is the way to heaven is through Christ alone, and it is narrow. And very few find it. And I would love to think that Jesus is wrong here. But he's Jesus and I'm not. I'd love to be more of an optimist than my Savior, but he's the one who knows every name of the person who passes that way. And so therefore should not be a surprise to us that though our God is very generous with us, and though our God is incredibly kind and very wise in all of his good gifts, we are and always will be marked as a minority in the world in which we live. Because we are God's people walking on a very narrow, a very hard way that everyone else is missing. And it's part of our task to invite them to change. Ask. Knock. Seek. Our Savior can be found. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. We thank you for your loving kindness. Oh God, would you please forgive us our sin, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And oh Lord, as part of those big prayers, would you teach us how to pray? And would you open our minds to see your generosity towards us? In Christ Jesus, amen.